Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Today's episode is sponsored by Femix, Radix, and RSK. You'll hear more about them later in the episode. Today's guest is Lex Sokolin, uh, the CMO of Consensus. Hey, Lex, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. No, thanks for joining. Um, obviously, uh, Ethereum and DeFi and um, all of the, the things you're interested in work on every day are sort of top of everyone's mind right now. So I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to come chat with me. Um, it is a pretty spectacular moment in the industry. So uh, excited to talk about it. Awesome. So, you know, before we kind of get into the substance, I always am curious about people's background, how they got into the space. I know you have a pretty dazzling background in a lot of ways. So just kind of curious to hear, you know, about your education and then how you ended up in, in this crazy space. Yeah. Um, I've always, I've cultivated two, two types of personalities uh, in one head, which is pretty uh, confusing early on in your career, but I think in the long run helps out. So um, I've done one track, which is very uh, traditional, maybe even conservative, focused on um, economics and the law and finance. And then the other track has been uh, technology, new media, and visual arts. So I grew up, um, you know, hand coding HTML websites as as uh, a bunch of other people did, um, and then um, uh, went to Amherst for undergrad, uh, and then Columbia for uh, a joint uh, JD MBA, and kind of cementing this, um, uh, what I felt was the necessary amount of credibility uh, around financial services. But what was lucky for me is that early on in my career, I I worked at Lehman in 06, pretty early on in my career, basically the whole thing broke, you know, the, the superstructure of the economy and the uh, financial industries scaffolding and, um, you know, sort of what people believed was true, uh, broke apart in a very major way. And so that that experience gave me permission to try and be an entrepreneur in financial services pretty early on. So, you know, 2009, 2010, uh, when the word fintech wasn't really used yet, um, I started a uh, digital investing company, a robo-advisor, Wyla Columbia, called Nestec Wealth. Um, and that took me on this entrepreneurial journey of thinking about, you know, how do people buy financial services? What should be the storefront? What it, what what matters? What's personal financial management? How does that connect to traditional finance? And I spent a, a chunky amount of time um, trying to solve that problem. And I think that problem today is somewhat trivial. You know, between the Betterments and the Robin Hoods and the Revoluts and the Chimes, uh, it's very clear that. You know, branches are dead and everything lives in your phone. But at the time, it was it was still an open question, and that kind of got me hooked um, 
on this frontier of the intersection between finance and technology and emerging platforms, you know, and eventually that winding road um, uh, took took me to crypto and blockchain. And I think um, the really fundamental things that are now going on in the transformation of the economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to dig into a lot of the stuff with you, particularly given your broad experience in the space and in the financial services sector. When you were at Lehman, actually, I, I don't think I know anyone who was at Lehman during that time period. So this is really interesting. Was like, was the writing on the wall or was, were, was everyone just sort of heads down still working? All I... I you've really got to anchor in the human animal for this, you know, and um, there's some good storytelling about um, what the investment banks did wrong, you know, but what is an investment bank, but a collection of people and then various leaders making particular decisions and often making particular decisions in a social context, such as, you know, oh, Goldman Sachs is selling a hundred billion worth of that volume, and we're at five billion. We need to catch up, right? Sure. Not much more than that. So, you know, when Lehman, um, I think that Lehman failed for very uh, idiosyncratic reasons. They weren't like the company went, you know, ran out of money uh, because they didn't sell enough product. They ran out of money because of a confidence crisis. You know, they mm-hmm. they were not allowed to borrow overnight which all the banks had to do because they were 30 times levered up. Um, and so they just weren't able to meet obligations. And so it was, um, it was a no confidence vote by the rest of the industry. Bear Stearns had nearly gone through the same uh, process. Lehman or Merrill Lynch were next. Uh, mm-hmm. Merrill's balance sheet was worse than Lehman's, but Lehman uh, didn't have that, that really large retail business. And so I don't think anybody but a very small group of people at Lehman um, realized that there was such you know, deep rot in terms mm-hmm. of the assets that were held. And then I think if you look at, um, if you look at how that weekend went down um, when the treasury uh, and the Fed and the, the finance industry kind of met to decide the fate of the bank, you look at the room, it was, it was all Goldman people, man. It was, it was uh, Hank Paulson. Like, it was just like everyone was a former CEO of Goldman Sachs, including the Morgan Stanley people and the Treasury people. And Lehman had been making trouble for a while trying to go after it. And I don't think that Dick Fold was a favorite uh, of, um, of those individuals. And I think it was an idiosyncratic decision to pretty much just teach, uh, teach him a lesson mm-hmm. um, and... Depends who you ask, but I think the the repercussions of letting letting all those financial contracts fail and get unwound was probably far worse than than if it had been a softer landing. Yeah, it's funny how like at the end of the day, when you really dig deep, it ends up being like people, right? Like people yeah. just interested in other people, or you know, settling scores or what have you. That's that's an interesting story. Yeah. Um, and the people are they're also you know like there are truths in the world about the physical state of, um, you know, gravity and uh, like the laws of, 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 um, uh, of, you know, is it raining or is it snowing outside? How much does this weigh? Those things are true. Um, There is no real kind of ground truth for a lot of the social sciences. And so 
um, people's opinions and their agreements and what they think is fair is is really wiggly. And I think mm-hmm. um, in crisis, you see that really kind of fall apart, which is one of the things that blockchain really fixes. Yeah. Do you see any sort of parallels um, from your time at a big bank in 06 and 07 to like right now? Do you think, you know, with all the sort of recent Robinhood stuff, and we can get into all of that later, but do you think we're sort of at a similar point of overheating bubble ratcheted up leverage or do you think this time's different oh boy um i think (laughs) it's a really different macroeconomic environment um in many ways far more bizarre Mm -hmm. where um there there was a clear asset class you know in the 01 to 08 uh macroeconomic journey, which was the the housing asset class. And there was a particular approach to tranching um, the risk of underwriting mortgages where um, everybody wanted to print as much debt as possible. Nobody held the debt. You then sprinkled uh, tranching and derivatives and structured notes on top and distributed it to wealthy investors and made the risk hard to see and understand. And, you know, that created holes in the various balance sheets uh, and various essentially confidence crises. And I think what is consistent from that moment is the, the fallout, like the price of that injury and the injury being that, you know, um, some of the financial firms were made whole and, in retrospect, some of the financial firms are doing way better, whether it's the JP Morgans or the Goldmans of the world, um, they're doing way better today than um, uh, they would have without the, the support of the government. You know, I think that injury of supporting the industry, but, but not protecting the regular person, uh, that the price from that injury has never been paid. Like that scar today is what is behind uh, GameStop. It's what behind the crypto movement. It's what's behind people waving the flag of democratizing financial services, even though that at this point is sort of a meme. Um, I don't think it's behind, uh, you know, Occupy Wall Street and 4chan and, um, all of these different swirls of kind of anarchy and chaos. Um, yeah, and there's an interesting sort of juxtaposition against the, you know, TARP in, in, in 08, which was, I think, like $800 billion or something. And now these like massive stimulus packages, which dwarf that and, you know, are primarily focused on, uh, I guess, large corporations and to a smaller extent, small business owners, and then to a very smaller extent, just normal people who make under a hundred grand who get like a $600 check. So, you know, it almost seems like we're making the same mistakes again, where we're saying, ah, here's 600 bucks for a year, try to figure it out. And then we go and we bail out airlines and we bail out other large corporations who have been doing massive share buybacks for the last 15 years. How, you know, how quaint TARP seems, right? Right, uh, yeah. How, how adorable this idea of uh, paying back uh, what we borrow um, and balancing the budget and so on. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the 
there's a real balance to this because the reality of like the economics underneath the rational actions of the people in positions who have to look at the macroeconomics of the country and think about of you know like yeah um gdp is down 25% this 25% um uh fallen gdp projected in the beginning of 2020 and then 40% of businesses will go bankrupt and so on you know so you're sitting there on that knowledge as as somebody as a policymaker and um You've, you do have to do something and you have con constituents, which are the reason you are in a position to do something. And I, I'm not that cynical about the decision-making that goes into the stuff. Like for sure at the edges, human nature will be yucky, but I, I think there's some just boring structural stuff that um, looks unfair uh, mm -hmm. to people, but is, it's like, one, you, I don't know how to cut this Gordian knot because there's no way to explain, you know, for the Robin Hood stuff, for example, that there's some arcane settlement, um, capital markets, in, infrastructure, collateral management, capital call that Robin Hood has, you know, rather than there's a cabal of hedge funds that wants to cheat the common person. Like, you can't explain that. It's just, but even if it's the truth. Sure. And it just doesn't sell as many papers. No, it doesn't. <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm sorry for the aside. It's just interesting, and I, I'm I appreciate your take on all of this stuff. Um, so, you know, you said you sort of ended up in crypto. It looks like you joined Consensus what a couple of years ago. Um, how has that How has that transition gone? And I think that was your first foray into crypto, right? Yeah. So there was a lot of energy in thinking entrepreneurial energy and thinking about how to reform finance. You know, my company was digitizing the, the, the investing experience for, you know, asset allocation, uh, working with financial advisors, uh, targeting retail or mass affluent investors. And there were lots and lots of companies uh, that were targeting just, you know, how do you on-ramp into, diversification or digital banking or things of that nature. And I, I got really frustrated with the pace of this uh, and, and whether it was meaningful or not. And you can think of the, you can think of the mobile banking and mobile investing apps as like a Spotify of CD-ROMs. You know, I, I use this analogy a lot, but I think it makes sense. You know, Spotify doesn't make, doesn't, it's not, it doesn't work unless the music itself is digital, right? Spotify is distributing digital music. And what we have with a lot of fintech, especially consumer B2C fintech, is these digital distribution stores for financial products that are sitting on the same portfolio management, core banking, payments services as 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And so, you know, it's just these archaic financial products. And so I think the opportunity in 2021 is no longer about how do you put a bank in the phone? It's how do you, how do you make the manufacturing of financial products digital in the same way that the CD-ROMs replaced by the music file or you know, the book is replaced by the text on the internet um, and you know, the, the cassette is replaced by YouTube and so on. So the actual 
financial product, whether it's a deposit or a money or an equity or fixed income, that thing itself is natively digital. It has its own property rights. It has its own economic attributes. And so um, I was in a role kind of helping um, helping investment funds think about digital transformation in large financial services companies. And this this just became obvious, you know, that what Bitcoin's doing to finance is what Napster did to um, to the music industry in the sense of you know, like digitizing and, and uh, transforming, disrupting the underlying making of that product. Um, and I think Ethereum is a really fascinating next-gen version of that because not only do you have the economic property rights and the financial instrument, but you have a computing platform that can encapsulate the entire financial infrastructure of, of the world. You know, so the hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap for, for companies that provide financial software, so much of that you know, is really just features inside of what a, um, a fintech infrastructure on a programmable blockchain looks like. And so for me, that's sort of my thesis for joining consensus. Um, and of course, a lot has a lot has happened since uh, those two years have gone by. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I I agree with you. I've sort of had the theory that fintech 1.0, or you know, the current iteration of fintech is just yeah, like a prettier version of the existing system. And maybe it's a little more convenient or slick or easy, but you know, you're just basically recreating the same structures that already exist on a digital platform. But yes, Ethereum and sort of Bitcoin and these kind of gigantic decentralization of the, the broader systems are really incredible. Um, and I think they offer a lot of promise, but they offer a lot of risk as well. Um, so I, I, I'd, I'd be curious to hear, um, you know, your view on, well, I'll get into the regulatory stuff in a second. I, I guess maybe for my listeners, if you could just give them a little background on what consensus is if they don't know um, and sort of what you guys' mission are, what you're working on. Absolutely. So um, the, the Ethereum blockchain um, is a computing platform. So you run software on it and uh, it syncs the outcome of, of the calculations within that software across all of the different nodes in the network. So um, you can you can kind of derive um, digital goods and assets of different types um, through this network, and you can do different things to it because it's all software. Uh, Consensus was founded by Joe Lubin, who's also a founder of the Ethereum project from the beginning. Uh, and Joe realized that this is a it's a really precious and novel and interesting thing, this computing platform. Um, but it 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 needs many things for it to work. You know, it needs um, uh, tools for developers to write software on top of it. It needs ways for financial capital to travel on it. You know, it needs users to be able to interact with this thing because, in the abstract, you know, some uh, some decentralized network. You know, it makes me think of those octopus things from the Matrix. You know, whereas you, you really need ways to interact with it and, and use this backbone architecture. So consensus was formed to 
catalyze lots and lots of projects to grow up on Ethereum, to build on Ethereum, you know, across lots of different industries. Um, you can think of it as almost a collection of early stage portfolio bets. So in its first iteration, um, Consensus seeded about a hundred different projects to build, um, you know, different solutions for Ethereum, whether it's around music or around finance or healthcare or identity and so on. And um, that was this Cambrian explosion in, in 2017. The, the next stage was to say, okay, there's all this interesting stuff. How do we start to commercialize it and bring it to um, the traditional world, to large institutions, to, to banks, to uh, healthcare companies? And so we built out a, um, a services arm that was able to work with you know, some of the world's largest institutions on trying to plug in the Ethereum-led systems and software into into the various things they were doing. So in the discussion of central bank digital currency or, you know, identity or um, like the, the uh, World Health Organization, there's a whole bunch of projects, I mean, in the hundreds that we've done to try and commercialize Ethereum or do proofs of concepts. And um, that, that took us to about 2018, um, right before I joined, which I think separated the... Um, the successful projects are the ones that were kind of clearly working versus the ones that were more aspirational and were much more futuristic, you know, were, were bets about um, how, how humans will be in 10, 20 years versus today. And so the, um, the company restructured very heavily last year. We did um, just a ton of, of lift um, to put ourselves into uh, a new structure. And so that structure is there's a software business, which is consensus, and we've separated out all of our portfolio management and investment activities into a separate fund company. And in the consensus software business, we focus on three things. Uh, number one is user enablement. So our um, crypto wallet is called MetaMask. It's the leading Ethereum wallet with over a million monthly average users. It's how people access this ecosystem. And so getting people to enjoy the, you know, the, basically the app store that Ethereum provides um, through MetaMask is, is number one. Um, number two is developer enablement. And so for there to be an app store full of things that people like, there, there have to be apps. And, and um, we have uh, a product called Infura, as well as a product uh, called Quorum uh, and a diligence product, which basically make it easier to build on Ethereum. It's, it's um, an enablement focus for lot, to have lots more applications. Um, sure. And then number three is financial enablement. And so the, that is, um, we have a suite called Codify, which connects into decentralized finance. We do, do, does digital assets, works with institutions, um, and is really all about trying to get financial volumes into the network. Today's episode is sponsored by Radix. In the current financial system, transactions are slow, inefficient, and expensive. And even supposed decentralized finance platforms, or DeFi for short, like Ethereum, were not designed to support the number and speed of transactions necessary to scale DeFi. Ethereum's solution for this is sharding, which results in scalability at the cost of composability. Radix is a new cutting-edge layer one platform for DeFi applications. Radix is specifically designed for DeFi, providing speed, security, and scalability. Radix uses its own next-generation consensus system called Cerberus, 
which has achieved over 1 million transactions per second in recent testing. Try doing that on Ethereum. Learn more at radixdlt.com. That's R-A-D-I-X-D-L-T.com. The DeFi revolution is the next big opportunity in the crypto financial market. RSK, the Bitcoin-based smart contract platform, is hosting exciting, secure, and rewarding apps that allow you to trade, lend, and borrow, all on the most robust smart contracting platform, powered by more than 60% of Bitcoin's computational power. For the holders out there, why let your Bitcoin just sit there when you could be earning money? Put your Bitcoin to work, trade without selling, spend without selling, lend and borrow on the most trusted network in the world. Hop on to rsk.co slash openfinance to be part of the future and start making money on your Bitcoin today. Listen, I've used a lot of exchanges over the years and all seem to have their problems, whether it's a lack of volume, bad or buggy UI, or the exchange crashing when Bitcoin makes a big move. Until now, that is. Femex is a new derivatives and spot exchange launched last November by a group of former Morgan Stanley execs. Femex sports lightning fast transactions, the ability to handle tons of transactions at once so you don't need to worry about it crashing during big moves, deep order books and real verified volume. They have several different trading pairs and leverage options. They also have low trading fees and a killer ref plan. Be sure to use this URL for my welcome bonus www.femexphemex.com slash a slash bully. Check it out. Thanks. So with, um, and I have a lot of questions about MetaMask and that's probably the final sort of rabbit hole I'll chase, but I'm curious about Quorum. You know, I remember seeing Quorum when it was at JP Morgan. I believe it was developed there. Um, are you able to talk about sort of the the decision to pick that up or are are you guys still working with Chase on sort of on that piece of the puzzle or is it now just like completely in-house at consensus? Yeah. So it's, um, it's a really important part of our strategy and it's something that's very actively worked on. Um, It needs a little bit of history, right? So, Uh, Quorum and Ethereum are synonymous. Um, There are different clients uh, that you use to access Ethereum. Um, Consensus uh, had always worked on Ethereum clients um, and we actually contribute them to the Hyperledger Foundation, so which is under Linux. Uh, Lots of people will know, you know, IBM's Fabric, which is part of Hyperledger, but we as Consensus have also contributed the the Ethereum client into Hyperledger so that, you know, institutions that want an open source kind of rubber stamped solution can do that. And it's called um, Hyperledger Besu. And Quorum and Besu are, they're essentially the, you know, they're the consensus answer to how to access Ethereum on both um, private and public chains. And then for Ethereum 2, we've got a protocol client called Teku, which is now, I think, you know, 20% of the folks running a client to connect to ETH2 are using Teku. So for us, our protocol team is, it's like existential, right? Like we're a product, mm-hmm. we, we have to shepherd the protocol. And so we have to know how to do that um, very deep research work. And so Quorum, um, we acquired it from JPM. They put in an investment check last year um, into, uh, into the business. Uh, and 
uh, we've we've essentially merged a number of of this protocol development work streams, uh, and our uh, you know JPM is an ongoing client using Quorum for the networks that it runs on top. You know, so they do the financial software on top, and then Consensus does the the blockchain protocol part of it, which is you know Ethereum based. Um, the kind of the the the, the small print and this is a small print around getting more institutional adoption is that we, we want the whole financial industry to be on mainnet Ethereum 100%. Um, that takes regulatory sort of grind to get there. And then it's also, you know, performance is an issue until layer two and all the rest gets implemented. And so uh, for much of the traditional financial industry, they're still looking to private permissioned uh, chains. And so it becomes a game between Corda and Ethereum in the guise of Quorum. And so, you know, that's one of the things that we do for, we try to do for the ecosystem is to keep Ethereum as relevant as possible for the enterprise segment so that in the future, they they do have a bridge to mainnet um, and into all of the you know cool innovative stuff that's going on. Yeah, no, it's an interesting sort of tension that exists too between I guess having sort of like a fully open, transparent, permissionless network, which is Ethereum, versus you know an institutional need to have permissions, to have privacy, to have you know certain levels of authority and authorization. So I suppose. I guess in theory, that's the goal of something like a quorum, right? Is that an institution that needs certain restrictions or access, but still wants to leverage the Ethereum network can do so via that client. Is that right? Um, I, that's right. Um, quorum is designed to be public or private. So, you know, it can point in either direction, either the private permission for the enterprise use case or, you know, to just be used for, um, as a regular Ethereum one client, you know, you can get an intuition for this. That's not nefarious in, if you think about like, are we cool to live in a world where I can look at anybody's bank account statements? You know, like I pass somebody in the street. Um, I'm curious about what they're wearing. I want to look it up in their bank account statements and I have full transparent access to all of their credit card information. And that, that is the public Ethereum world. And I think it's uh, radical and awesome. Um, you know, but I think for a lot of investment managers and money managers, that's one of the things that is tough. You know, mm-hmm. so, so um, what I would say my personal fear, this is not the consensus house view. So my personal fear is if Corda and Fabric lock out Ethereum from the, the global finance industry, um, it's going to be tough to, to get it back. Sure. Um, and so I think it's super important for Ethereum to be an option for um, even the most, you know, kind of uh, regulated conservative players for it to be an option so that as the tech evolves, they have the choice to, um, to hop into mainnet down the line. Sure. Yeah, and I, I like your example of, you know, seeing somebody's shirt on the street and then being able to see their financial records. And I, I, I have questions for you kind of about the privacy aspect of the Ethereum network. But I, I think it makes sense now to discuss 
MetaMask first to kind of give people an understanding. So I, I, I mentioned this before we hit record, I'm getting a ton of questions recently about like, what is DeFi? What is MetaMask? Um, so I was excited to have you on because I think a lot of folks want to understand what it is even all of this means or what we're talking about. So I don't know if it's possible to maybe spend five minutes on like, well, what's MetaMask and like, how does that interplay with this broader topic of like DeFi and, you know, how that operates on Ethereum? I think people just have kind of a conceptual confusion or maybe lack of knowledge on those points, which you could certainly speak to. So I would be, uh, I'd be guilty if I didn't uh, tell, tell our audience to just go check out metamask.io. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's as easy to download as any neobank, a robo-advisor, or digital investing app, and you can get it on your phone. Um, or if you're running you know, Chrome, um, you can get it as an extension in your browser. Um, and so it, the easiest way to play with a toy is to play with a toy. Um, so it's uh, just metamask.io. But in terms of conceptually what's going on, um, again, a little bit of context. You know, so in the physical world, things are simple. We, you, got a, you got a pocket, and before there was a phone in your pocket, there used to be a wallet in your pocket, you know, and you'd put some cash in there and probably some identity cards, you know, your driver's license or whatever. And before COVID, you would go to a store, and uh, if you like something, the store doesn't know your identity and it doesn't know your, doesn't know how much money you have. You just have some stuff in your pocket and you pick whatever you want to buy. You go to the counter and you take out your wallet and you pay and you leave. Um, you know, and you always have your money. It's your money. It's, it's your wallet. You bring it uh, wherever you like to the stores that you go to. When we go to the internet world, what happened is that um, digital goods collapse their price to zero. And so, you know, digital goods are basically free. Um, you, you become the product and uh, you get advertising against you. Um, and that becomes sort of your identity. And then every large shop that you go to, whether it's Amazon or eBay or, you know, Netflix, pick any shop, you don't bring your money there. What you do is you create an account at that shop, like a little locker, and into that locker, you put all your most important, valuable stuff. You put all the data that you have about what you look at. Um, You put your credit cards in that store's locker. um, And then you put your identity into that store's locker too. And you walk away. And so when you're, you know, you're in a mall and you're walking by all these different stores, three stores, five stores, 20 stores. And each of these stores has a locker with all your stuff in it, with all your money in it. And it's a bizarre, crazy, twisted backwards norm that we've all adopted. And so the version of the world that blockchain is going to um, is just reverting to that natural state of you you don't have a little locker of your identity with every single website. Your, Your identity and your assets and your money are yours. They are in your wallet, in your pocket, you know? And so when you show up to a blockchain based Amazon, um, they don't know anything about you until you allow them to interact with your wallet. Um, they don't know how much money you have and they don't know what you hold. They don't know what you're looking at until you allow them to interact with your wallet. And so, you know, we're kind of trained in our apps to think about 
this is Square Cash, it's my payment app, or this is Chime or Money Lion, my, my banking app, or Chase, my banking app. Um, MetaMask is kind of like your banking app, except it's it's a little bit more powerful in the sense that it's it's really holding um, the access to uh, your blockchain-based assets, you know, and um, it is what you use to interact and um, uh, and pay in all of these different uh, decentralized applications in these applications that are running on blockchains. So MetaMask is um, your your essentially both your entryway and your um, non-bank bank in a sense because that's where you hold your assets and it's also what protects you from spying and and generates your privacy because you can permission or non-permission different applications to interact with you um, you know and so that's the core that's the core function of uh, of MetaMask. And, you know, you sort of hear colloquially this term thrown around web 3.0 is, is what you're describing basically a description of that? Yeah. Um, it's, you know, so web one is a whole bunch of HTML flat pages, right? So you're going around looking at websites and the websites are all flat. They don't do anything. They're just like little pages torn from a book. Uh, arranged on on walls that are hyperlinked together. And then web two is you've got um, these pages on the wall all of a sudden are interactive. So think to Facebook in 2005 uh, or think to uh, when Google Sheets and the Google Office started coming out, cloud-based um, software where the software doesn't run on your computer, on your desktop, it, it, com- it runs on the cloud, and then the browser just displays to you the computations that are done on the cloud. So web two is this interactive internet. But the problem with this interactive internet is that, again, you've got to have a little locker in every single cloud and every single service that you that you interact with. And we run into these privacy issues, these big data issues, these you know, Cambridge Analytica, all, this, all the stuff that we don't like about web two is structurally uh, anchored in, in how the industry works. And so Web3 is an attempt to re-architect how the apps are built um, and, and where they sit. So they're, they're not built on the cloud in the way, you know, they're, they're built and programmed on top of the Ethereum network um, in a decentralized manner. And so it's probably slightly beyond my pay grade to, to explain the, um, uh, the virtual machine and so on. Um, but it's a new computing paradigm and it allows for much better privacy for much better control over your money. Um, and for, uh, you know, just giving, giving power back and agency back to the user. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think it's super cool. And I'm obsessed with it. I use MetaMask probably like 10 times a day. Um, and I love the way that sort of you can interact with, these new systems and these new apps and stuff. Um, I, you know, back to this privacy question, you sort of alluded to the fact that this helps privacy, but I think back to your earlier point about the person wearing the shirt on the street, there could be a criticism made of, well, now people can see, you know, if they see, if they know one transaction in your wallet, if they, if they know you went to one place, then they can find your entire wallet, see everything you hold, see everything you've done. Um, 
I mean, there's this tension, right, between you wanting kind of this open, transparent system, but on the other hand, like people wanting privacy, like it just, it seems like a, a strange result to have anyone be able to yeah. go and see what you're holding. So it, I don't, I'm just kind of curious as somebody who lives, breathes and thinks about this all the time, do you have kind of an opinion on, on ways to bolster that privacy or do you think it's not necessary? Do you think this is the kind of right format? I, I can give you what are probably not very insightful, not very interesting answers, right? Like I can say that um, there are teams that are working on uh, injecting privacy into transactions like zero knowledge proofs. Sure. So that they the, the transactions are uh, you know cloaked. Um, there are solutions like mixers, which will kind of dis put your funds together with everyone else and then dissipate it out. Um, and we can also point to the fact that it is it is legitimately early. It's like mm -hmm. um, real player in 2003 trying to buffer your video versus where YouTube is today. So I think these are all answers that directionally say that, yeah, there's 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 not a clear answer. There's there's problems here. And in particular, you know, like a regulator might be unhappy if you send your your money into a mixer because they can't see what's going on. You might be happy because you're creating privacy for yourself, but then at the same time, the regulator might complain that there is no privacy for you know personal financial information, uh, or a bank might complain that there's no privacy. So mm -hmm. it's it's definitely a soup, um, but I think, it, I almost think that's a second order effect. Like we, we're still at the place where we're trying to turn the core paradigm of what computing is and what money, digital money is, like we're still trying to put that on a completely different track. And then um, these, these other issues are connected to it, but will be solved as, um, it's not a nice to have, that, that's reductive, but you know, it's like, um, to me, I guess it's it's a second order issue. It's like a user experience issue, right? The early adopters are in regardless, and they kind of know how to um, how to na navigate um, anonymity and and things of that nature. You know, you, like you can you can connect to third party providers and custodians that might um, uh, pool your capital together and so on. Mm -hmm. But I don't think today we have a super obvious answer. Yeah, and you know, I think. I sort of like Zuku's take on it that when we all first started using the internet, we just go and Netscape and plug in our our uh, our credit card information into an unencrypted web page, and we all thought that was yeah. fine. But then, you know, over time, these ways to kind of encrypt data were developed, and now we have HTTPS and things. So, you know, it's probably you're probably right. It's just like something that needs time to be built, but it's something I think a lot about and I, I'm interested in the, the privacy implications of these technologies. Um, and it is interesting to watch people just be like, <laughs> fuck it, here's my yeah. wallet that has 2 million bucks in it. And like, you know, like some people on Twitter have the, their yeah. like Twitter name is their yeah. Ethereum wallet and you go to it and it has $300 million in it. <laughs> You're like, oh my God, these guys just don't care. But I, I, I think to your point about, well, you know, it's early adopter. It's almost like 
a game at this point or just something that people are tinkering with. And that's how new novel tech gets built and tested and um, hardened over time. And then, you know, as it develops, we can layer on or build around these other privacy and other, um, you know, sort of secondary issues that are. Yeah. And, you know, think about it this way. I keep going to this analogy because I, for me, and I think for a lot of others, it's very visceral. So like real, the experience of real player in 2001 or 2002, where, you know, the, the premise of real player was video over the internet. And it was a horrible experience. It was, um, tiny bandwidth, right? Dial-up bandwidth, trying to eat compressed video in a, in a pixelated screen. Um, the model didn't work, so it was full of ads and the software was bloated and it was on your desktop and the whole thing was just embarrassing. But their thesis was 100% right. I mean, we're in a place where people are posting LinkedIn videos every day of, of you know, of, of their live streaming or, you know, Twitch or uh, pick any platform, YouTube, where the, a, a large portion of the internet's col- uh, content is video. So the, the secular bet is entirely right. And so we're in, the, in a place with um, programmable blockchains right now where people are saying, oh, like this, it's, it's not scaling in this way or in this way. And of course, in 2021, the scaling debate is uh, in a lot, in a much better place than it was maybe two, three years ago. Um, but the internet had bandwidth issues in the past and and it's a technical challenge that got resolved. Um, and I think a number of these, um, of these usage problems just get solved as the industry matures. I think we, we've seen that in a whole bunch of other places. Sure. I'm sort of curious now. I know the Robin Hood stuff is sort of fading into the rear view and everyone's now on to the next thing. But I think it it makes sense to at least talk about it in the context of DeFi. You know, you see a lot of kind of the the Wall Street bets guys coming over now to crypto Twitter or just getting interested in crypto. Um, I'm kind of curious on your take about, well, what is like what does it all mean what what do you make of the robin hood stuff the game gamestop stuff and how do you think sort of DeFi fits into that yeah so i, I never answered your question of what is what is DeFi, and you know i think it kind of goes back to some of the earlier themes of the the financial manufacturing what is the factory that makes an equity or uh, a fixed income fund or a, a dollar, you know, what are, or a venture capital investment. And there's a whole bunch of what's called market structure of, for the capital markets, meaning the markets for where capital goes um, for all these asset classes like equities, like, like venture, like cash equivalents and monies, private monies, uh, sweeps and money market funds, all that stuff exists. And, um, there's a lot of tech in it, but it's it's a last generation tech. Uh, DeFi is rewriting a lot of that financial infrastructure into uh, Ethereum and pretty much recreating all the different things that a bank or an investment manager or a payment company or an insurance company would be able to do and make. And so you have projects like Ave or Comp, uh, compound where you can get an interest rate, you can lend out assets and get an interest rate for lending them out. Um, you've got 
projects like MakerDAO where you can put things in a box, like a collateral box and get a loan against it, um, denominated in dollars. Uh, you can, um, in other cases, bring a bunch of your capital and put it into what is roughly equivalent to a fund structure uh, on a project like Yearn um, uh, or into a, a pool of capital or be a market maker, you know, and get a stream of return. And so, and of course, uh, last but not least, you can trade. So you can trade in a decentralized way um, against a machine rather than against other people through an automated market maker. And so things like brokers, Robinhood's a broker, um, things like collateral management, um, the DTCC uh, requires collateral to trade. Uh, things like margin and leverage and all of these things have been rewritten in software on decentralized finance. And they are real time. They just happen. They're real time in the sense of blocks. You know, it's, it's not in terms of seconds, but in terms of how the blockchain is computing uh, one after another, the transactions. But they are modern and digital and um, the word the crypto industry uses is permissionless. You know, you, you are not, there's no one that's going to be, there's literally no one can pry off the buy or sell button off of the interfaces for um, these protocols. And I think, you know, the controversy with Robinhood is it got a massive um, capital call because of uh, GameStop's volatility. It wasn't able to meet it. And so it, killed the buy button and it went out to the market and raised 3.4 billion to meet the call. Um, and that was interpreted as a very conspiratorial, you know, um, uh, uh, action that, you know, disenfranchised Robinhood users and was counter to its ethos of democratizing investing. And it was, but it was for a very kind of boring reason. When you go to DeFi, um, there's lots of things that can be improved, but no one is stopping you from doing um, the things that you want to do. If you want to take the action of speculating or trading or investing or lending, all of those things are available. Now there's high prices and um, you know, equities, traditional American equities are not, or generally are not, um, in decentralized finance because of regulatory reasons. Um, but as a place that is, that is the next generation of capital markets, uh, very obviously um, decentralized finance is something that people should explore, learn about, and be curious about. Yeah, and there's there's so much to unpack there. And I know you're a lawyer, so I might torture you a bit on the regulatory side. <laughs> um, Disclosure, I've got a JD. I, I did right. not pass the bar. I, I Fair enough. To myself. So is, isn't it like a lawyer graduated law school, but an attorney passed the bar? I don't know. Maybe it's a distinction without meaning. Uh, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll defer okay. to counsel. Fair enough. Well, I'll just call it semantics. But I am, I mean, as somebody who, you know, obviously has a great depth of knowledge on this stuff, I'm just curious because I think over the last, at least this is my take. So over the last couple of years, there's been sort of this cold war between crypto and regulators where regulators are like, well, you know, we don't really like this stuff that much, but there's on and off ramps, um, there's centralized exchanges and the people that are sort of the, the targets of regulators tend to be like the, I guess, um, 
centralized players in the space. And now, I mean, I'm just curious to hear if you think that sort of like this broader decentralized exchanges and like really the explosion of decentralized systems that allow for all of these novel financial products and services will kind of trigger the the attention of regulators or how do you think regulators are going to, to deal with this evolution and the decentralization of these products? So this is a multi-level global game. You know, um, as a regulator, you are of course shepherding your own financial markets. And again, like I, when talking about this stuff, let's give let's assume that people have good intentions and you know, they're, they're doing their job and um, that they hold their opinions uh, in good faith. Um, and so from that frame, regulators are uh, interested in consumer protection. They don't want another 2008. They don't wanna blow up people's livelihoods. Um, they might not be on the cutting edge of FinTech, but they generally are trying to protect the markets. Um, and there's a conservatism in that because you, you know, if you have a system that works, you would, you would like to just stay there so that it continues working. Um, second, as a, as a regulator, you're also in this global game for innovation. So um, if I'm in the US and I see China launching a central bank digital currency and saying blockchain is our strategic initiative, um, you have to square that with them out, you know, uh, saying Bitcoin, you can't Bitcoin mine on uh, Chinese land. And you have to square that with India's Supreme Court battles about crypto assets. And then imagine you're doing the same thing, but from the perspective of a, a small country, um, like, um, uh, you know, whether it's a Switzerland or a Singapore, um, the same way that Delaware in the U.S. is the the haven for corporations, right? On a global scale, there's going to be regulatory havens in which exchanges like Binance um, find um, choose choose their jurisdictions. And even within the states, you've got you know Wyoming um, and other uh, other states being more crypto friendly, and then the OCC being more fintech and crypto friendly, and then the American Bar Association and the, the state regulators pushing back. And so it's just a whole giant mess. Um, I think that if you look at, um, if, if the trend continues, which is that the real innovation is in DeFi, not in the on-ramps. The on-ramps are fantastically valuable like Coinbase, but the real stuff is going on um, on-chain uh, like Uniswap and so on. Um, I think for sure regulatory involvement is going to follow. And I think there's going to have to be software solutions for, um, you know, American participants. So where, where the U S has jurisdiction against over its citizens um, to, to prove cost basis and tax liability and um, you know, have, have certain, reporting requirements around what kind of money is being touched. So I'm, I'm confident that's going to come. Um, I'm fairly positive on regulators because I, I don't think they're out to stop innovation. I just think that structurally their role is to, um, to, to be conservative 
in these yeah. ways. And so, no, I, I agree with you. And I've, I've sort of, I've had that discussion with other guests and attorneys I've had on about how, you know, the United States is often seen as um, particularly conservative on some of these matters. And I think it has to be, you know, you, if, if you're kind of the adult in the room from the regulatory point of view, you have to be serious and slow and methodical and thoughtful. And I think the regulators, you know, I think the regulators have done a good job broadly with kind of a difficult situation and they're allowing some of this innovation to flourish, which is great from, um, you know, a competitive point of view that you mentioned earlier. So it, I'm, I'm just, you know, I, 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 I have thoughts for the regulators trying to navigate this stuff because I know it would be very, very difficult <laughs> yeah. to be in a regulator's chair looking at DeFi being like, holy crap, this stuff's evolved. I mean, even I'm having trouble keeping up. It seems like every day there's a new you know, product or solution that's being offered in the DeFi space that you're like, wow, that's a really interesting idea. And like, I don't know how you regulate that, but I'm sure that's, that's their job and they'll figure it out. So um, yeah, I, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole and we're, we're running short on time. Um, I was wondering if there's anything else sort of from consensus's point of view or you even personally are working on that, you know, you want to plug or let my users or listeners know about um, before we have to sign off here. Absolutely. I think the main thing, it's really hard in talking about this space to sort of find the point that everyone believes, you know, that is believable to the crypto natives and the maximalists who um, see the world only one way and then find also something to say that is true, rings true to the, um, to, to the regular investor that's trying to improve their life a little bit. Um, that also rings true to, um, you know, an organization like a Merrill Lynch uh, or, um, you know, an LPL or any, any of the firms that are really focused on the financial health of millions of Americans. Um, but I think it's just really important for everyone, no matter what your background is, to have curiosity about what is happening here and try to give latitude to, um, you know, to, the, to the different counterparties. I mean, we're at the beginning of a fantastically interesting set of innovation. It's a technological innovation and you know, human nature flows into whatever technology we create, whether it's you know, books or the internet or, or, or decentralized uh, applications. Um, so we are gonna have failure of human nature, but I would, again, just advise people to be really curious about uh, this global interconnected, really special moment that the most amazing thing is like, you can just participate in it. You know, there's nobody preventing um, the listener from adopting a mindset where they can just be a participant tomorrow. They, you know, download MetaMask and buy a couple of hundred bucks of um, of Ether through uh, through Apple Pay or something, and are off to the races, taking a look at these different protocols and different things. And then, if you're a developer, check out Infura so that you can. Um, uh, write software and connect to Ethereum. Um, and then I'll also plug, um, I write about this stuff uh, in quite a lot of detail. So check out fintechblueprint.com for, um, for more thoughts and writing on the space. And what's your, uh, what's your Twitter handle again, Lex? Lex Soklin. 
All right. Well, this is really exciting and interesting. I appreciate your time. Um, I, I would also encourage my listeners to just go and download MetaMask. I agree that the best way to learn about something is trying it. So I, I think it's, I, I think I tweeted this the other day. I think MetaMask is one of the most important sort of developments in the last five, 10 years in technology generally. So I'm really excited to see what you guys do with it and where you go. And I'll continue to be a, a user. <laughs> Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Lex. I appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Wednesday, 7 a.m. Eastern. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at BullyESQ to continue the conversation. See you next week.